Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our game changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. I am Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. We're live in three, two, one. All right, Lanny, here we are. In the studio. It, uh, welcome to West Point, Mississippi, home mm-hmm. of Mossy Oak, and the Gamekeeper Studio. Yep. It's uh, Turkey season is winding down. Yeah, I think you can feel it in the air. We've got about probably two more podcasts about turkeys, yep. and then we'll move on to to another subject. I probably start talking about I, ducks a little bit, I, I imagine. Well, yeah, you've got one teed up for yeah, us. And yeah. uh, so we've we've had a really good run. of. I think we've had some great guests, some great discussions. Yeah. I do too. I think some of our listeners are ready to move on to other stuff, and some of them are like, we need more turkey stuff. Well, I mean, so, turkey season is just now opening up in Missouri yeah. and Kentucky and all these places. We're going to so try to have We're the, burned out by the time it's, you know— well, yeah. we love turkeys so much. We sure And do. there's so much kind of going on and a lot of people trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. What's yeah, up with the turkeys? Yeah, so I think it's been appropriate for us to have as many as we have. I agree. So are we reflecting already? Are we going to save that for? No, let's reflect let's later. Refer- but okay. uh, so th- today's podcast, we're going to have Dr. Will Goolsby from, he's from Auburn. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have there. him on there. And I've also, across the table down over here, in, in the is. we've got Olivia Lappin. If you remember... Olivia is the grad student from Mississippi State. Yes. And she's getting a, 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 a she's studying quail, yep. but she's a biologist. Mm-hmm. And so I asked her to join us today to help us come up with some better questions to ask. Because she may hear him, the, Dr. Goolsby, talking about something in his research that provo- pro- provokes an answer, yes, right. a question that we wouldn't necessarily have. That's right. We hadn't had enough schooling, so we get we got to have Olivia in here to... Keep it straight. Yeah. That's right. So, I like it. Yeah, I do, I do too. So, uh, you know, it, it should be really interesting because he's doing some uh, disease research. Well, I think the thing that, that w- what Olivia adds, uh, she adds a lot, but we always approach it from hunting first perspective, you know, and she's looking at things from a biology perspective first. first. So Although we, she we, is a, you know, we call she ours, is a rabid turkey hunter. Yeah. Would that be an objective perspective? I'm, not, I'm never objective. Yeah, you know, so so she killed her first turkey this year. Yeah, uh, but with some big hooks on it. Too. He did. I know and, you're jealous. I can still see it. <laughs> yeah, and, but I, but I'm also told by uh, David that she's gotten up many mornings and gone by herself. Yeah, yeah. I have to say it's impressive. Well, it kind of drives me nuts when he always goes. I might as well just go and you know even hear a turkey or whatever, and no, it's, always it's bring the gun just in case. Well, yeah, that's really good. Okay, Richie, you, we know you found that sound effect. So, <laughs> so uh, look. 
look, Dudley, uh, the blood on the biologic, you said you had a few? Yeah, I have three really good ones. Um, so let's get started. Uh, my buddy Andy DeRusso, he's been a big fan of this podcast since episode one. Um, and uh, we just got to be friends. He started messaging me, and it, you know, we're good friends now oh, because cool. of the podcast. His son, Bo. Uh, killed his first. We're going to say since this was in Kansas, it was a Tom. It was his first Tom. Tom. That's oh, right. Tom. <laughs> um, and uh, we're all real proud of him. Uh, killed it near Lawrence, Kansas, but we're not going to get any closer than that. Uh, beautiful turkey. I saw the picture. Um, and then uh, one of my best friends from growing up, his parents practically raised me, uh, Brandon Parker. His son, Brandon, Killed his first bird, I'm guessing, down in the Big Black River bottom, Ooh, somewhere around nice Hines or Madison County. Uh, so we're proud of him. And then uh, my second cousin, Phelps Dickerson. The guy that's got your last name as his yeah, first. He killed his first turkey at Catfish Point. Oh. Uh, huh. Which is where all the turkeys were trapped, uh, were trapped back in the 70s. I think that's where um, the turkeys... He's seven years old. He was with his granddad, Stevie, and uh, mowed him down. Right. Seven years old. He is a fourth-generation Phelps turkey hunter. Turkey hunter. How about, can we get a horn for yeah, him? Yeah, fourth-generation. Here we go. So, Well, that's just incredible. And then we've got... Uh, we got a lot of stuff that happened last week. Yeah, the Mr. Fox situation Absolutely, was first just, and foremost. It, it was just incredible. It was. It, it all came together. It, it really was. Now I'm hoping that uh, that we're, we're going to be able to do a uh, a little recap with the Hazes mm-hmm. uh, to tell us what what all what went on, so we can learn a bit, little bit more. But watching that raw footage of this, the emotion of the moment that was that was incredible. The world seems in balance now after Mr. Fox gets on the board. Yeah, that's for sure. He made a great shot because yeah. that was not an easy scenario. No doubt about it. I've missed turkeys in that scenario. You've missed a lot of turkeys in that scenario. I can witness that. Yeah, yeah, not, I'm not a lot, but a few. I love watching it. You know, he still a few. Yeah. he still does it the same way. He picks his gun up at the at the heat of the moment and makes the shot. And you know, they're sitting around the base of a big old tree. Uh, just perfect scenario. Good stuff. It was. Now, did you have somebody you wanted to uh, show? Well, my wife, Shannon, you know, the Rio Roundup's still going on. She's on the board out there, so got back in town. She killed a big turkey, uh, too. Giant, <laughs> she always kills big, giant turkeys out there. So, uh, But I think that's still going on. They got some licensing and sales hunts going on, so uh, that's happening. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that was, that's been a been very productive week or a couple of weeks out there for and, them. Yeah, and there was a, uh, Mr. Fox's vest has got a couple of notches on it last week, too. Yep, sure did. Neil brought it in here, barefooted. Mm-hmm. You, you would have been impressed with yeah. uh, the stories of who. Dudley, speaking of, how did that go? What did your hunt go? I, I had a wonderful day. I walked Beautiful almost sunrise. 11 miles with the Mr. Fox vest and uh, was not successful, but uh, I just had a good time. Yeah, well, that's important. Yeah. It? I'm glad you had a good time. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, look, we're all laughing and smiling here, but there's one thing I wanted to bring up. Um, it's been a sad week with the Mossy Oak Properties family, the Mossy Oak family, uh, Chris and Peggy Holly. Her father, uh, Bud Nixon, Bud Nixon passed right. away, 96 years old. Yeah, huge and, uh, influence on this place. One uh, of Mr. Fox's best friends. Uh, one of the places that 
you know, Toxie used to go hunting as a, as a child, so it's been a huge influence on this place. We'll be uh, sorely missed by everybody. Yes, and I just wanted to say, and, and we all do, that we're all thinking about the Hollies and, 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 and what's going on there. It's a, a sad time for sure. It was a really, really sweet, loving funeral, as you witnessed yeah, as well. On a on a beautiful place. Yeah, it was. I imagine you could probably hear a turkey gobble from there. You probably could. Yeah. You sure could. So, all right. Hey, Mac, where are you? He's over there. He's looking at Onyx <laughs> again, trying to yeah. find one more place to turkey hunt before he gets out of we here. We still got a few more days left. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I tried to get him yesterday. I said, I'm kind of burned out. And he's like, I'm not. I'm like me neither. <laughs> I just want to hear one more bird gobble. Just one, one more time. It's always that way, yeah. Max. So, just so, one uh, more. Do, do we have a commercial? We do. So we came out with a new product within Biologic, and it's our plant and soul food with organics. It's a triple 15 uh, with major micronutrients. Uh, I think it's going to be an amazing product. We've seen some really good results uh, on comparison tests. Thirty nine ninety nine, fifteen pounds. I mean, it's a fantastic product that Dudley and I've kind of been working on, and, and used his knowledge of, of what really makes sense for your seedlings, your trees, your your wildflowers, your vegetable garden. I mean, it's a really cool product. Can I interfere for a second? Yeah. yeah. So it's uh, it's like a mix of of modern fertilizer and old school organic fertilizer. Uh, and it's got slow release and quick release components. So like uh, one of the controlled release fertilizers we've used in the past uh, does not really uh, release nutrients uh, when the soil is cold uh, or damp as well, and they're not as, as uh, readily available. And so we, we kind of designed this one based on uh, year-round availability of nutrients um, it's got the quick release for when your plants really need it, but the, the slow release so you don't have the fear of burning your plants as much, um, and, it, and it works really well. We actually planted four cypress trees today at the kennel, and uh, I mean, it's far from a scientific experiment, but it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we just planted four cypress, and two of them we fertilized, two of them we didn't. And uh, it's kind of a little race. Yeah, I didn't leave the fertilizer out there because you know Bill's going to go fertilize those other two. <laughs> yeah. He was talking about his tomatoes. <laughs> but right? they need a spot <laughs> with, you know, with uh, some more shade. To let yeah, the, where you know, it's It's fun to put the dogs in a more of a real-world scenario, so maybe someday we can put the little platform down for the dogs to well, what tells me that what tells me that this is going to be a great product is Dr. Ed Snotty worked mm-hmm. on it, helped help. help Forming those components together. He's brilliant at this kind of stuff. That's what he does. Yes. I mean, he's really, really smart guy. So we've got, uh, uh, I don't think there's anybody better to do that. No. No. You know, he helped develop Perfect Perfect Pond, Pond, which is. That's right. Hugely successful. That's right. This thing's in a bucket, too, so you can throw it in your four-wheeler whenever you go afield, you know. So it's. Sprinkling it's ready to go. That Mac, to go. a guy can go to plantbiologic.com or nativenurseries.com. Mm-hmm. And what, what should he key in to find it? Uh, biologic plant and soil food with organics. Okay. There it is. All right, guys. Well, that's some good stuff. So, yeah. yeah. New product, Richie new is on the board. Today. Yeah, he is on the board. Hey, this is Dudley from Native Nurseries. I spend a lot of time deep in the woods looking for special trees. Onyx keeps me on track and helps me be sure I can find them again and my way out. Try it out for yourself and see. Use coupon code MOSSYOAK to save 20% on your Onyx subscriptions. 
All right, guys. Well, look, I am really excited. Uh, you know, we've we've had a bunch of different guests. We've been talking about turkeys, talking but turkeys. but I, I follow this guy. I've been hearing about him. Will Dixon yeah. kind of made an introduction, but Doctor Will Goolsby, he's from Auburn now. That excites me. Oh, you know it does. Yeah. So if we need to. <laughs> <laughs> now, Richie, you're gonna have to hit I the horn. He's gonna hit the war eagle now. somewhere. These in guys there. are Mississippi State <laughs> folks over here. Uh, Will and it's just hard sometimes, but. But look. Well, there's good folks at Mississippi State, too. I worked with several of them. Yeah, you know, that's kind Told of. Told you, Bobby. Well, He's taking the high road. <laughs> yeah. I, good job, Will. Yeah, that, that, very much. But we're real excited to have you here, Will. The, uh, you know, we're, we've had Dr. Chamberlain a number of times, and I think you all do some work together. And uh, That's right. So yeah, well, your name's popped up a bunch, so we're excited to, to, to finally have you. Yeah, I'm honored to be here, guys. Hey. There we go. This young man, I mean, you can look at him. He's, he's, he's a young guy, but he's in a great position to, to influence a lot of people like mm-hmm. Olivia mm-hmm. And, and teach and educate. But the reason he's he became a professor of wildlife uh, is because of his love of hunting. Now, that we got to salute that. That's, hey, a, that's no important. No doubt about it. That's how we all ended up here. And I, it, from what I can gather, wild turkeys and whitetails are probably his two favorite, but, but he's really focused on doing some research uh, in the state of Alabama right now on the, on the wild turkey situation. So I, I was wondering if you could start right there, but before you start right there, if you oh, would. wait just a minute. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I want to ask you where you fall on the thought of long-tailed cats in the oh state of gosh. Alabama. Hey, yeah, it's no, I can see it by the smile that he knows they're there. Well, Obviously, they're here. Yeah, there we go. There we go. <laughs> I've, I've fought that fight so long now, I just give in. <laughs> Who am I to argue? Yeah, well, Lanny saw a black one one time. He wasn't black. <laughs> Anyways, we've been talking about this for like 90 podcasts. Have you ever seen anything that just polarizes people like asking about a long-tailed cat? Not much. Not much. Uh, and they're always black. Mine wasn't. <laughs> it seems like no one ever sees a brown one. Well, every time Bobby sees a Sasquatch, it's brown too. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, okay. The ones, the ones that get me the most are, you know, every now and then a trail camera picture will come around, and, um, you know, they'll say, "Oh, I got a picture of this cat killing this deer behind my house in in North Alabama." And you look, and it's a mule deer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or there's a cactus in the background. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's Mountain right. Peaks. It's Woodall Mountain back there. Yeah. Well, we'll go to these shows, you know, and then you'll be standing there. Somebody, inevitably, somebody says their uncle's brother saw one but didn't get any pictures of it and, you know, saw it walk across a food plot. And it, it's just, it's just a, a, amazing how these stories kind of permeate our hunters' conversations. Yeah. But... Um, Anyway, so let's get on to more important things, if we would. But can you tell us about this research that you're doing in the state with carcasses? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, the the carcasses you mentioned, Bobby, are, are part of a, a bigger overall picture in terms of our research. We've got several objectives we're working on. Uh, this all kind of started um, a little over a year ago. And I don't know if you remember or, if you know, I know Mike's been on the podcast several times, but he talked about um, – you know, he had the hunting public guys come down and film some some of him some of his research in the field in Georgia, and um, you know after they filmed that episode, the hunting public guys got really interested in getting involved in turkey research, and specifically they wanted to do some stuff in Alabama. So they asked him, you know, what's the best way for us to get involved? And what that ultimately le- led to 
was um, they started a fundraiser to buy some of these these gobble recording units, you know, that we typically refer to as song meters. And I'm glad to go into that and talk about that in more detail um, if y'all want to later on. And uh, Mike called me and said, hey, you know, look, we uh, we look we're trying to raise funds. I don't know how well this is going to work, but we'd like to put some of these gobble recorders out on wildlife management areas across the state. And at the same time. I'd already been talking to the Alabama Wildlife Federation and Turkeys for Tomorrow, and both of those organizations uh, were really wanting to get some turkey work off the ground, and we'd been, you know, kicking some ideas back and forth, and that really just turned into a, a great opportunity for us to leverage some of those funds that Mike was already uh, working on securing through the hunting public uh, to turn this into a bigger project, and so it's really evolved from there. Wow. Well, so the the song meters that you mentioned, can you explain how those things work? Yeah, sure. So they're they're about the size of the the main device. The electronic portion of it is about the size of a trail camera, and we can program it to record audio um, whenever we want to on a predetermined schedule. So we go out and we put these out, you know, systematically across a property that we're trying to survey for turkeys. And we attach uh, a coax cable to it, run that about 30 feet up a tree, and uh, then we attach a microphone. So we're just trying to get that microphone up above the vegetation so that we, you know, can record sound from a, a larger radius. And, um, and then we leave those out, and we, we, they're programmed uh, this year to record from about an hour before sunrise. So we, we capture all that gobbling on the tree, and um, then they continue, they continue to record gobbles, well, really all noise. Um, for five hours after sunrise. Hmm. Can these things send notifications to your phone? <laughs> <laughs> so, just wondering. No, they don't have cell link options for these mm. yet. I've talked to our buddies this morning yeah. about that. Yeah, that, that sounds incredible. Yeah. So do you have many of them start gobbling that early, the the, the hour before daylight? Is, is, I'm Not sure. that early, you know, um, you know, typically it's, it's around the time that, that you would imagine as a, as a turkey hunter, it's, you know, about 15, 20 minutes before they start flying down is when, is when most of the action starts. Yeah. Is well, the, Randy heard one at five thirty the other morning. That's early. That's early. Yeah. That's 30 minutes I don't know early. about y'all, but where I've been hunting this year, they've been, I feel like it's been late every morning. Hmm. That was the earliest one I'd heard. I heard, heard of, I hadn't heard one that early. Well, it seemed like every year, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll get out of the truck and there'll be one guy right. and it, it just and like, oh, right. yeah, yeah and he's and just like dark. maybe he is just really excited fired up. Yeah. it seems like if they do gobble earlier they're more fired up so on these management areas will is where do those birds can you say like from a scientific point of view do those birds gobble less than birds on private land so that's exactly one of the things that we're trying to figure out. Um, so, you know, that's kind of where the study got started and, and how Turkeys for Tomorrow and the Alabama Wildlife Federation were able to expand it, among other things, was they purchased a similar number of these units and were putting them out on private lands that are located in close proximity to these public lands. And that's one of the things that we're going to look at. We're, we're um, collecting data on the uh, hunting pressure, you know, number of hunters, number of hours hunted each day on the private lands. So we've got our, our landowners who were very thankful um, that for their, their allowance of us to kind of intrude on their hunting season a little bit and ask them to keep some records for us. And then um, Alabama Wildlife and Freshwater Fisheries also keeps up with that information on their public lands through their app. 
And so they've got a log of, you know, hunters checking in on that site so that we can get an index of hunting pressure on those sites as well and the specific timing of that hunting pressure. And so that'll allow us to do a little bit of um, comparison and contrasting between not only those different ownerships, but we have, you know, specific information on the intensity of hunting on these properties and how gobbling responds. I, I got a feeling how that one's going to come out. <laughs> I don't know. You might be surprised. There, I, there know, may be more pressure on private than there, than there is public in a lot of areas. Well, I would think it would have to prove that pressure, increased pressure, decreased gobbling activity. I mean, I don't know that, but you wouldn't think so? I don't know. Everybody calling at them may make them gobble more. Not where I'm from. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't know. That's going to be great, Did though. I can't wait. You know it all? No. I can't yeah, wait so to that, see the results of that study. I also have a question for that study, too, if you don't mind me asking. Yeah, sure. So you're just looking at if gobbling is being affected um, by hunting pressure. Are you also, in addition, going to be looking at if, um, like, hen nesting success is any different based on if they're gobbling or not? Like, looking at how hen reproduction is affected by a de- potential decrease in gobbling activity. That's a good question. So we're definitely keeping up with nest success um, on one of our private properties. Unfortunately, we, we don't have the funding right now to, to track that on all these properties that we're working on, um, but it's definitely something that we're interested in. One of the, in addition to the, the whole hunting pressure and effect on gobbling question, one of the other main, or really the overarching objective that I'm interested in from these data is trying to look at um, trends and relative abundance using the gobbling and then correlate that back with the habitat and landscape characteristics where each of these properties is located throughout the state, uh, throughout the state, because we've got song meters all the way from extreme North Alabama to extreme South Alabama and points in between. Um, And then, you know, at each of those different latitudes, we've got multiple properties included. So we've got quite a variation in, uh, in the composition of these properties. So we can start to look at, you know, what are the characteristics that we commonly see that are associated with larger populations versus smaller populations of turkeys, which could get into some of these questions um, that I'm sure you guys have discussed before about, you know, are, are we seeing, you know, more turkeys in areas that are, you know, in, in intensive pine plantation forestry, or, you know, are we seeing uh, more or fewer turkeys in areas with more ag and, and, you know, those relationships may change in different parts of the state, depending on what habitat is compo- uh, component is lacking for birds in a given area. So that'll be really interesting to see as well. You know, uh, Lanny, you, you met a guy the other day uh, that hunts close to where we do, but he has moved to, to uh, Jackson County, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he was telling me that the birds up where, where he moved – gobbled so much better than the birds in Sumter County. And that, that kind of surprised, surprised me to hear that. But he, I, I've always just thought it had a direct relationship with hunting pressure. Uh, reading Illumination in the Flatwoods, he's talking about these poults and how they're paying attention to every sound and every sight and every everything. You know, I just, and I don't know, I'm not a scientist, you know, I don't have a study going on. I can just speak from field experience. Uh, but I know the more the pressure is, the less likely they are to... Uh, you know, Will, the thing that frustrates us is, like, we'll have four or five beautiful mornings in a row, and you might have, you, you might go and you'll have two great goblin mornings, and you go back that third, and nothing's changed, but, and then they'll be quiet, mm-hmm. and it's, I wish we could figure that one out. 
I do too as a turkey hunter. Yeah. <laughs> Believe yeah. me, because I've had several mornings this year where you know I just knew that they were going to be they were going to be after it, and they absolutely weren't. And it just you know it leaves you wondering: are the birds there? They just not happen to be there today, or are they just not gobbling? Who knows? No, I was gonna say, have you done or has there been any sort of research on that? Because that's actually what my research is on quail right now is trying to understand what um, caused them to call or not to call on certain mornings. You know, is it the the presence of other quail calling? Is that going to cause them to call more or just environmental stuff, you know, like the weather and whatnot? Um, is that something that you have seen with turkeys or because we haven't really figured anything out with the quail yet at all? So, right. Yeah. So we're so we're in our first year of data collection. We don't have those results in yet, but you know, Mike's done some of that work in the past and I know that he's found gobbling activity to be associated with barometric pressure and, and wind speed and things along those lines. It's it's interesting. Yeah, it is. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, some mornings you hear more birds, you know, just overall bird chatter, you know, when you're deer hunting, sometimes right. the squirrels are moving around and some days they're not, uh, well, we really tend to, we tend to always say it's going to be good on a high pressure day, but that hadn't mm-hmm. been the case this year. Yeah. You know, some of the prettiest days with a four mile an hour north wind, and it's nothing. Yeah, but you know, um, it, right. it also make just common sense to me would be you know if the birds fly down and group up quickly and they're all together, there would be less reason for a gobbler to gobble his head off to attract hens if they're mm-hmm. already surrounding him. Already there, you know. So maybe it's just something as simple as that. So is it fair to say this will probably be one of the most comprehensive, widespread uh, gobbling activity studies we've seen so far? So far, I believe it is. Um, I don't want to speak out of turn, but I I do think as far as just the the geographic scope that we're doing it at, it it does qualify as the largest in that regard. Yeah, when you were talking about the different latitudes in Alabama, I was like, wow, this thing's really uh, uh, taking a big, uh, big wide. wide yeah, so wide we had there. We had nearly 80 of these units out this year. Awesome. Um, and so, you know, we've used we've used uh, similar approaches, you know, just basically point counts to monitor bird populations forever, you know, for decades in wildlife science. But, you know, traditionally that entailed sending researchers out to the field and they could be at one point every morning for, you know, a certain amount of time. Um, so that's so these units have allowed us to overcome that limitation but then the problem that they create is, you know, you've got six hours that you have to listen through potentially <laughs> for each of these units each day. That's um, a lot. And I, yeah, and I, I, I added it up the other day and um, I factored in, you know, what we typically pay, you know, research, the research technicians, which are often undergraduate wildlife students to go through data like that to help us out with research. And you're looking at well over half a million dollars just that we would have to pay personnel to go through that data. And so, Mm. um, and one of the great things about, uh, the partnership between my lab and Mike's is that they've been working on for a while, developing a machine learning tool, basically, you know, artificial intelligence, if you will, um, to go through that data for them and cut down a lot on the processing time. So it can go out, it can go through the data. Um, it can look at the patterns in those spectrograms and basically pick up on a gobble and pull that out of the data set for you and, it saves a lot of time and allows us to to actually go through um, such a huge volume of data like we'll be collecting. Hmm. That's cool. It really is. It's, it's, it's no, so I can't exciting. wait to see the results. You know. Of so, uh, so Doc, you, we also understand that you're doing a carcass sh- survey or study. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yep, that's right. So, um, 
we're basically we're look we're calling that the the fertility objective of this study, the gobbler fertility study. And so um, what we're interested in looking at is, you know, what proportion of the males in any given population are breeders, right? And um, at the most basic level, uh, uh, an interesting question is, you know, are jakes producing sperm so that they're capable of reproducing? Um, But even in addition to that, we want to look at whether or not adult birds are also, you know, what proportion of those birds are reproductively active as well. And so um, we started thinking about ways to do that. And what we eventually settled on is we recruited um, a number. I think we ended up with 30 something uh, team leaders around the state that, you know, are avid turkey hunters and that have a network of family and friends that are avid turkey hunters. And they kind of serve as our collection points. So basically we send them all the sample collection equipment and they distribute that to their hunters ahead of the season. And any of those birds that are killed, um, they they preserve that sample. They freeze it for us. They fill out a little bit of survey so we can know where the bird was killed, um, what its behavior was when it was killed, all that kind of stuff. And um, then we'll go and collect those at the end of the season. But what we're looking at right now is probably getting about 300 uh, carcasses from hunter harvested birds this year. And um, we're like 289 right now um, that have been entered via the online system. And we've got a bunch more that have been just entered on paper that aren't recorded yet. And um, we'll bring all those birds back to the lab. And that's the first thing that we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at the testes, seeing how developed they are, seeing if they're producing sperm, um, technically refer to that as spermatogenesis, um, to see what their potential reproductive contribution to the population is like. I I just would have assumed any adult male turkey that was killed was experiencing was was in the process of trying to reproduce was trying for sure yeah yeah well they, maybe they are trying but they're not successful yeah. yeah and so you know surprisingly with with so much so many questions revolving around who's doing the breeding right now right i mean that's, a, right. that's a, the forefront of a lot of these turkey management conversations there hasn't been a lot of data collected on it um there was a study that was done in missouri in the 60s Um, They specifically focused on jakes to see, you know, whether jakes were fertile. And there's been some work done in Texas on Rios um, looking at both adults and jakes. And the Texas study did find that most of those adult birds, you know, they're producing sperm. They're reproductively active. Um, What that data doesn't allow us to address is whether or not behaviorally they're reproducing. You know, is there another bird there that's that's preventing them um, through antagonistic interactions and behavior? Um, from getting that chance to breed with the hen or not. Um, so we won't necessarily be able to address that, but it is start. It is good to start to get data that shows us, are they capable of it? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that behavioral aspect is going to have to be the next step. Wow. You know, there's some antagonistic turkeys out there. That, yeah. <laughs> for, for sure. But yeah. so going one step further, is there, any disease implications that you guys hope to learn from studying these carcasses? Yeah, absolutely. So um, specifically, we're collecting um, some bone marrow from the leg of each of these hunter harvested birds, and we're going to use that uh, to test for LPDV. I'm sure that that's a disease that you guys have probably heard a lot about already. Um, it's one of the ones that's also at the forefront of the, the, the turkey population decline uh, question right now. And then we're going to be testing for several other viruses and parasites from those carcasses as well. So it gives us um, the opportunity to 
kill two birds with one stone pun not intended yeah mm-hmm. um to but we can look at the fertility you know the reproductive contribution of these birds throughout the season and by age class and then we can also collect that d- disease surveillance information as well boy this is i'm just so happy that somebody's doing this. yeah no doubt about it because we've had these little conversations you know for the last 10 years about what's going on what happened to them what do they disappear is it have to do what they're doing in the ag fields or what's going on so Thank goodness somebody's out there at the forefront of this. Yeah. Yep. And um, just to add to that, I was I had a brief conversation with Mike the other day, and it looks like we're going to be sending a subset of those samples to um, specifically a, a portion of the spleen up to some researchers that we're going to partner with in Michigan State. And they're going to be looking at those um, for evidence of uh from of toxins mm-hmm. um, and see what kind of toxins these birds have been exposed to as well. So that's you know, disease has been uh, received a lot of attention. I think potential toxins that they may encounter in their environment is starting to emerge in the conversation. Yeah. Um, but that's you know more of a more of a recent conversation that's been had. So I'd just like to ask the question: From time to time, it just always bubbles up, and uh, also in the quail conversation that that farmers that maybe are putting out chicken litter. Yeah could be potentially causing some issues and and maybe and we also hear about some chicken litter that didn't compost right composted could, properly yeah, yeah. And you, they still are still bird parts in it is do you think that's playing any kind of role in this do you, is there any indication at all i think it's something that we still need to pay attention to um so the major disease risk that comes from chicken litter is histomoniasis um which is the scientific name for blackhead disease Okay. And, um, blackhead disease, it comes from, it's, it's a protozoan that is carried by a worm that lives in the intestines of of poultry. Um, and so we know that there are high rates of infection in, in domestic birds like broilers, but, um, the one thing that really cuts down on the risk of disease transmission from broilers to wild turkeys is that um, they're harvested. Those birds are harvested, meaning the the broilers, before they've um, typically been around long enough to, to for that that worm to complete its life cycle, and then potentially pose that disease risk to wild turkeys. Um, so, based on that, it seems like there's there's a limited risk of infection from broiler uh, chicken litter, um, as is commonly practiced, but you know, if you have a situation where a producer is potentially running, you know, multiple six week cycles of birds on the same litter in a chicken house, then it could become more of a concern. Or if you're using litter um, from laying houses, which obviously, you know, those, those chickens are allowed to reach a, a later age and the life cycle of that parasite is able to complete, then that litter could potentially pose some disease risk if spread out in an area where wild birds could have access to it as well. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, you know, we're just guys that care about the resource, and we and we just hear the, these different things that people say, and and you know, well, it's all you, speculation. But yeah, I mean, everybody and, knows something's going on. Yeah, and and that one seems like it could make sense potentially. Right. Right. I agree. And I mean, I was just having a conversation with a biologist friend of mine um, the other day, and he was, I won't say what state he was in, but um, he was saying that he's noticed some of the most severe declines in turkey harvest in areas that are kind of the poultry hubs in that state. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but, you know, that's just correlation. It's not necessarily causation. 
I think it's something that we continue to to stay abreast of. And um, I'm not saying we shouldn't continue to research it, but just based off of um, the life cycle of that parasite and common poultry practices, I, I don't think right now that um, it's necessarily at the forefront of this of this population decline. Sure, sure. Dudley, did you have a question? Not really. No. Way to go. Matt's got one. Me and Matt go. Go ahead, Matt. You go first. I do. Before I get started, I want to say that Carter Week said you needed to work on your turkey calling skills. Oh, my God. This question is. I've intentionally never called in front of Carter so that he he cannot criticize me about my call. Yeah, he actually killed one this morning, he told me. So I guess he's a decent caller then. Carter's a great caller. But <laughs> but I did have a question, and it might be out there, and we we might have to cut it out. But I know with humans, the male determines the gender or sex of the child. So with turkeys, does the the gobbler or the hen determine the like number of eggs, and what also determines how many hens versus male turkeys are in that clutch? Sex determination in turkeys. I did not think we'd be getting into that today. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so, um, golly, I've never thought about this. Um, I'm almost positive that it, you know, it's just, it's just like it is in, in humans where, you know, you have to get a Y chromosome from the male um, for the offspring to be a male. Um, as far as clutch size, you know, that's, I think, going to be completely dependent on the body condition of the hen mm-hmm. that makes sense. And, her, and her age. Yeah, the gobbler, you know, all he's doing is he's fertilizing those eggs. The, the number of eggs in the clutch is going to be um, totally dependent on the condition that the hen is in. That makes a lot of sense. And, and can a male fertilize, uh, can multiple males fertilize different clutches, different eggs in the clutch? Yes, that gotcha. is possible. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, I've heard I, that. and I think it's designed that way to, to for yeah. for uh, for procreation. Yeah, for, I mean for <laughs> maybe diseases or so they don't. Yeah, what's what's really interesting with turkeys is um, males almost com- compete for uh, re- you know compete to fertilize clutches on two occasions. So the first one is the obvious one that we all see, right? You know, when those the males are out fighting, they're setting up their pecking order, um, trying to get access to that hen. But then also because, you know, hens store sperm, if she receives sperm from more than one male, um, there's effectively competition between those sperm to fertilize the eggs mm. in her reproductive tract. Mm. Um, so the, the higher quality, the more vigorous uh, sperm is going to, you know, have a greater likelihood of actually fertilizing an egg and being represented in that clutch. Mm. Is it also true that the most... Uh, like the last male is more likely to have his sperm fertilize the egg. So like you actually want to be the last male to mate with the hen because that is the sperm that's more than likely going to fertilize those eggs than one that had mated with her, you know, way beforehand. Yeah, that, that makes total sense to me um, because we know that while, while hens can store sperm and it can remain viable for up to about a month, wow, um, the quality of that sperm starts to, to decline rapidly um, as quickly as one week after that copulation event. So it would stand to reason that, you know, if she mates with one male and then seven days later she mates with another one, 
that more recent copulation event is going to lead to the fertilization of, of her clutch or the egg that she's in the cycle of laying. We're asking some good questions. Got Olivia in the house over <laughs> yeah. here. We're sounding really good on this yeah. one. <laughs> I don't feel like I've been questioned this hard since my since my PhD <laughs> and, and oral exam. Hey, we're just getting started <laughs> yeah, here. Right. So. Well, so as I've been communicating with Will to set this up, it's it's obvious he's pretty hands on. There was one day when he couldn't talk to me because he was demonstrating skinning. Or uh, y- y'all had killed some wild pigs, some students, and you were doing maybe do, doing a study on them or something. No, that it wasn't part of a study. Um, that was just a teaching opportunity. We've got this this major, this new major at Auburn University that's become really popular very quickly. It's called Wildlife Enterprise Management. Mm. And so this is a, a degree program where students take courses both in wildlife and business as well as hospitality. Um, and the goal is to equip these students with the skill set that is needed to go out and work in the hunting industry, you know, work at outfitters and lodges and things like that. And um, I teach one of the classes as part of that major. It's called uh, Survey of Wildlife Management Techniques. And it's different than a traditional, you know, wildlife biology type techniques course. And uh, we just kind of hit on all sorts of things. And one of the things that I just added to the curriculum last year was caring for harvested game. And that's because I felt like a lot of the students that were coming through our program had never really, you know, field dressed a deer mm-hmm. or, or pig or anything like that for that matter. And, um, you know, they'll all sit back and act like they have in class, but then you get them, you know, we, we have a necropsy lab here and, and you bring in a pig and you hang it up and hand somebody the knife and they look a little bit less sure of themselves. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, so I'm just trying to get them some of those, you know, those hands-on skills and experiences. I do that in all my classes. I try to take students out burning and things like that as well in my habitat management class. But, um, yeah, that was just an opportunity to try to, you know, get them an experience, you know, field dressing, skinning, and quartering. Um, and they seem to appreciate that experience. But because it's in spring, you know, we can't we can't do it with deer. So typically I know somebody around here that's pig trapping. We'll get a handful of pigs and, you know, it's basically the same thing. <laughs> sure. A <laughs> little, little bit harder to skin, but um, at the end of the day, the, the anatomy is pretty close. So if they can do it on a pig, they can do it on a deer. So I would imagine you get asked a lot of questions about pigs. And and, and we've been hearing that for years that yeah. there was some research being done over there. At Auburn. Yeah, trying to keep the pigs from maybe making them sterile. Maybe yeah. there was a feed going on. But, I mean, that's kind of a rumor that we've been hearing. But are, are we – is the world, the, the Southeast, where these pigs are such a problem, are we getting closer to having a solution? Yep. It's my understanding that um, we're nearing the end of some of the trials that are being conducted on looking at uh, some toxicants, basically poison for pigs um, that the USDA has been conducting. And I think, you know, if you really want to talk about that more in, in more detail, you need to talk to my colleague, Dr. S- uh, Steve Ditchkoff. He's been leading a lot of that work. Yeah. Um, and is involved in studies with the USDA related to it. But I think that toxicant is going to be approved uh, fairly soon, but it's not going to be one of these deals where you can buy that, you know, go down to, you know, your local co-op and just buy pig poison. <laughs> it's probably going to have to be put out by, by certified applicators. Um, it may be licensed for specific areas. And I think, you know, there may be some regulations related to how it's dispensed as well. Um, Cause the problem with it is, in, in any poison for that matter has always been making sure that you get enough of it and that it's very specific to the targeted species mm-hmm. that you're trying to remove and that you're not incidentally killing other wildlife with it. Yeah. 
Well, it can't get here soon enough. We've been there. You go. <laughs> Bring it on, Richie. Uh, we've been talking too uh, specifically this year about where we've noticed um, just in, in field observations where we've obviously have a lot of hog infestations, and it seems like the hogs are driving the turkeys out. I don't know whether there's a absolutely depletion of you know uh, mass crops from the fall or what it is. I didn't know if anything in your studies would help maybe shine some light on that too. Yeah, so um, we we also partnered with the Alabama Farmers Federation, um, and we're we're addressing that. So you know, Steve on his site, uh, you know, I just mentioned Steve Ditchkoff a minute ago. He's got a research site where they are um, they're looking at turkey nest success rates and behavior in the areas that they're using, using GPS transmitters before and after pig removal. Mm. And we're going to be putting some song meters on that site too, to see how gobbling changes as a function of pig removal as well. And um, it should be pretty interesting to see what happens. Um, You know, I think a lot of people, when they, when they start to think about the interaction between pigs and turkeys, they're most concerned about nest predation. But from the data that's been collected so far, it doesn't seem like pigs are really a, a major nest predator. Sure, you know, if they come across a turkey nest, they're going to eat the eggs, mm-hmm. right? Um, but they don't go out specifically targeting those eggs. Um, what I'm more concerned about is, number one, the competition for food resources. Um, Lanny, like you just mentioned, you know, they, va- they go in there and they vacuum up acorns that turkeys otherwise would have eaten. That could lead to reduced body condition in hens throughout the winter. It could affect overwinter survival. And uh, very importantly, too, it could affect what quality she's in going into the spring and maybe affect her clutch size, for example. Um, But in addition to that, you know, you've also got um, a lot of landowners that can't manage food plots the way that they would like to because of the pig damage in an area. So they prevent them from being able to provide that that additional food supplementation on top of the native habitat management that they may be doing as well. And then thirdly, like you mentioned, I don't, you know, turkeys just don't like being around pigs. Right. I think that's a huge part of it. And, um, you know, I hunt, I hunt in a place that um, we've got a fair number of pigs every now and then. And, you know, they'll come in and ruin a deer hunt too, because in the fall, you know, deer don't like being around them. So there's that resource competition that is my primary concern. And then also you've got the behavioral exclude, what I refer to as behavioral exclusion component on top of that, that is a concern as well. Interesting. Yeah, Man, we, I can't wait we, for this stuff. we've been hearing from some of the locals, you know, Toxie included. Uh, they're seeing what they think that the turkeys are actually shifting their spring yeah. hangouts from, uh, you know, creek bottoms and, and big hardwoods down in the bottom. And they're they're hanging out on these upland, upland sites, sites now to to try to get away from the pigs, it seems, you know, areas they normally didn't occur in the spring. That's crazy. I hadn't even thought about that, but, um, that study that Steve's got going on should be able to address that, you know, because they're going to have turkeys in the same area as pigs, and then they're going to remove those pigs and potentially see how habitat selection of those turkeys changes. That's a really interesting point. Yeah. I've, I've seen some drastic, just in the, you know, the public land around here, uh, you know, 10 years ago, some of my favorite spots, you never saw pig sign. And now, uh, it looks like somebody ran a subsoiler through the woods. Oh, as soon uh, as they show up, our everybody just, I mean, it's just sad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It is. we got them bad. We got them bad. Yeah, it's, it's and, crazy. And it's, it, you're, it's a direct correlation, just like the photos we get. It's like, oh, there's a turkey, there's a turkey, and then the pig shows up, and you never see turkeys again. You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hmm. 
So what should we be asking you? You know the, the interesting things in your head that you, you guys are studying and talking about. What, what else? What's a question we need to ask? I mean, I feel like y'all have asked me enough questions already. <laughs> I got one more. Lanny's got, got one. one. Go ahead, yeah. Lanny. Uh, you know, I, when people – I have I have found dead turkeys, uh, and I just want to know what you would recommend that somebody, somebody do. Because I didn't know what to do when I found my first one. It was a hen. I was like, oh, yep. God, what I do? Sure. Yeah, if you can, um, you know, reach out to your local game warden or biologist if you have contact information for them. And, you know, they've got a million other things they have to do. But, um, you know, hopefully if you catch them on the right day, they're able to come pick that up. And then, um, you know, all across, if I'll put a plug in here for Squidus, um, if y'all haven't, you know, had anybody on the podcast talking about Squidus before, it's, Squidus is an acronym for the Southeastern Cooperative Wildlife Disease Study. And all state agencies in the southeastern United States help fund that organization. They're based out of the University of Georgia in Athens, and um, they can submit, you know, samples from diseased or suspected diseased animals to that lab for testing. And, um, you know, Squidus will usually give a report back and then the biologist can turn around and, and notify the landowner if it worked, you know. Assuming they they get you know have the ability to get out there that day and pick up that bird, mm-hmm. don't have you know they may be on a prescribed fire. Who knows? But right. so so don't what I'm what I'm saying is don't hold it against them if they can't. Sure. Um, but I know of a lot of uh, you know biologists that I talk to that are really putting a concerted effort into trying to pick up as many of these diseased turkey reports as they can mm-hmm. um, to try to get more information. And then any of the birds that we're collecting as part of our fertility and disease study um, that, you know, had any kind of weird, you know, um, outward appearance or acting strange or anything like that, you know, we're putting a flag on those birds when we send send them off for disease testing to try to keep up with that as well. Good. Mm. Well, you know, that's just the chances of walking up and finding a dead turkey. It's well, mine happened when we were seeing a lot of the litter in the ag fields around the place, and I, I found I found him. And I, I called the game warden, and he came out and took it. So yeah. I just yeah. didn't know there's a. And Toxie found one a few Toxie, years yeah. ago, and I found I found two that year. Yeah, well, there was a one year when we had that place in North Alabama that we fa- we found a turkey just stand just standing in a logging road, huh. wouldn't run, uh, long beard, just and his head was covered in these look like lesions, mm. and I, well, I mean we killed him. But I didn't know what to do with him after right, that. Right. But it was it was pitiful, is what it was. Yeah. Yeah. If, if anybody's listening to this in Alabama and they they find a bird like that, they can uh, you know my you can find my email on our school's website. You know, shoot me an email. I'm also you know on social media. You can contact me that way, and we'll try our best to get that bird from you. Um, actually, a friend of a friend, um, it was Carter Weeks' friend, last week um, had a bird on his farm that was just laying up around a grain bin hmm. and um it was a gobbler and it laid around for a couple hours i think he had to go do something else and he said you know if it's still here when i get back i'm gonna i'm gonna have to do something about this bird and um he went back and it was still laying there looked in worse condition than it was before so he actually i t- you know i i told him i said you could reach out to your local game warden and see you know if he'll come out and euthanize it for you or something along those lines but he just decided he was going to tag it himself so he killed the gobbler and tagged it and uh, submitted it to us for sampling. So we'll see. Good. good, mm. good. Well, i tell you what, it makes me, uh, I feel good knowing that there's, uh, there's yeah. people like Dr. Goolsby that are teaching, that, that are, that are very passionate about wildlife and they've, and they've taken a career choice to help educate other people about, yeah. uh, so that this, this, uh, this 
this sport that we love so much, hunting. Yeah, this resource. It, it has a future. Because mm-hmm. it's important. People like you are, you guys are, you're, you're talking to a lot of people. I bet you have kids that come into your classes that haven't grown up hunting. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, last time, so I, I used to teach a freshman class that, you know, was kind of the wide end of the filter. So, you know, we had over a hundred students coming into our wildlife major in that class. Um, I quit teaching that a couple of years ago because I took on another course. But um, as of that time, we had about 35 to 40% of students in any given year um, that had hunted at least a couple times in the past several years. And um, that's, you know, something that's pretty common at a lot of universities with wildlife programs across the country is that fewer and fewer of the ones that are coming into the program are hunters. And um, it's difficult because, you know, you don't share that common ground when you first start out interacting with them. But what I have found is that most of them, you know, the more they advance through our wildlife curriculum and they understand the important role that hunting plays in, in conservation um, funding and population regulation and all those benefits, procuring your own, you know, organic meat. Mm. A lot of them, by the end of it, if they don't hunt themselves, they're at least, you know, supportive of hunting at that point. That's exactly what happened to me. I was the same way. Like, I went in as a freshman, never hunted. I just never really had the opportunity to. Um, my, my family didn't all that much, and I just – it's so hard to find people to take you hunting. And and then, yeah, when I learned more about it in my classes and the importance of it, I definitely see that more people are interested in hunting and even a lot of my friends on social media, now that I'm hunting, they'll reach out. They'll be like, you know, I've always wanted to get into it, but I, I, I don't know if morally I could do it. And it's, I love teaching them the importance of, you know, how important it is for conservation of, you know, all different types of wildlife species. So it is really cool to see that transition of people in the wildlife program go from non-hunter to being interested in, in hunting because it's good for the wildlife. Right. Yeah, you went from a surrounded by some not some non-hunters to now you're surrounded by yeah. a bunch of hunters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She didn't Welcome have, to Mississippi. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when she got to Mississippi, she didn't have a problem finding somebody that'd take her home. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you jumped in with both feet, Olivia. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, look, uh, Dr. Gillsby, we really appreciate you being here. Now, before I forget it, we're going to send you a levy sling, a gamekeeper bottomland Levy Sling for being on the podcast, being a guest, and a subscription to the Gamekeeper magazine. But we would like to ask you a trivia question. And so what we'll do, uh, we'll ask you a trivia, and if you get it right, then somebody who has given us a review wins a prize. And if you get it wrong, I don't know what happens because we've never had a guest uh, get anything wrong. wrong. (laughs) No pressure, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, Mac, who is uh, Dr. Goolsby playing for? So you're playing for Whistling Pines. Yeah, come here. So you're playing for Whistling Pines. Okay, and he mm. gave us a review, I guess. Gave us a good review uh, with the subject, be a maker, not a taker. Oh, hey, so, that's so, playing on... Uh, Dr. Lashley. Oh, I wonder yeah. if this is an incognito version of Marcus Lashley trying to get some <laughs> free <laughs> stuff. Another yeah. lady sling, you know, yeah. you can never tell. So <laughs> the listener uh, of the review maker will be receiving a Avery Bottomland shotgun case, if oh. you get this right. Oh, yeah, floating Wait. shotgun case. Bottomland? Man, that's great. Yeah. I've, I've got one of those, and it's like... 20-something years oh, they're, old. they're phenomenal stuff. Okay. Still use it. So and if you ever fall in the water with your gun, it's really useful. It, it, very useful. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, Matt, hit him with the question. So we've got two questions, and you only need to get one of them right. Uh, and and well, Bobby gave better. me this list. And so the first question <laughs> is, what does Dudley and a hemorrhoid have in common? Oh, my God. <laughs> no, you don't have to ask yeah. that one. <laughs> Oh, I, just, I, didn't, right. I didn't know it. Lindy I can answer that. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> so the, right. the question is, so in the southern freshwaters, typically which species of fish spawns first? The largemouth bass, a crappie, or a bluegill? I got to go with crappie. All right. All right. Yeah. All right. You got it right off. Yeah. 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 Wow! When the dog when the dogwoods are blooming, the cr- the crappie are biting. That's, That's exactly right. right. Yeah, and the turkeys are gobbling. That's right. That's why I don't catch any crappie. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. Yeah. Well, look, we have had a lot of fun with you. We hope. Yeah, like, it's been great. We uh, we need to uh, get you back on. We can talk yeah, about get, some other subjects. I, wanna, I can't wait for these results coming. How long are we looking at? How long will it take? We'll start having some results this summer. Nice. We'll have some preliminary stuff to share. You know, I like to put that stuff out um, every now and then on my social media account to just ke- kind of keep people engaged. Um, they love to eat that up. I mean, I tell you what, hunters are probably more informed now than they ever have been. Um, and that's a great avenue that we can use to get some of that that research out. Um, but ultimately, the study's planned for three years. So we'll have our final results at the end of um, the end of 24 or so. Great. Can't well, well, what is all? What is your social media and uh, any other things you want to share before we get out of here? Yeah, sure. I'm most active on Instagram, and you can find me at uh, Doctor. That's D R underscore Will underscore Goolsby, and that's G U L S B Y. Okay. And he's got some good information. I can't wait to get all this study back. Yeah. A lot of habitat stuff on there too. If you're into habitat management, that's, you know, another of my primary focuses. So. So uh, I saw one post that uh, have you got a young son that you're introducing to the, the, I saw a, I saw he looked like four or five year old little boy, real cute. Yeah, he's two, but he looks like it. Oh, <laughs> he looks okay. like he's, he's a healthy might be, young yeah. two-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> he's 98 percentile, so. Man, yeah, he's he's big for his age. Yeah, we were out um, putting out some cameras last weekend around this spot where these birds have had me uh, chasing my tail, <laughs> not trying to figure out what they're doing. And um, he came out with me. We were riding around on the ranger putting cameras out. I got a little seven-year-old gr- daughter, too, that she's really into it. Um, and has been out in the deer stand with us several times so far. She's, she won't sit still enough turkey hunt. But, uh, yeah, we did some cam- – put some cameras out, and I got some nice pictures of deer, hogs, and coyotes, but no no turkeys yet. <laughs> well, it's so much fun being with your kids out there. I can speak for that. Absolutely. They, they eat it up, and, I mean, you know, that's what drives me every day is just trying to think about, you know, they may choose to be hunters, they may not, but I want – I want the animals that we love to chase to be there to give them the option to if they decide to. No doubt about it. Yeah, well said. Very well said. <laughs> Boy, Rich is burning that <laughs> horn up today. <laughs> Chairman of the boards. <laughs> <laughs> we have had a lot of fun, Will. And uh, and and look, we if there's anything that we can do, you know, at Monshit, we we started this uh, collectively started this. It's a turkey stamp and yeah. raising funds that will that will go to we're going to continue research to do projects this. like what yep. you're doing. So uh, hopefully in the future we can do, do some things to help you. Yeah, yeah I think that's awesome. Here. I think that's awesome, and that's gained so much traction. I, I feel like I've been seeing it everywhere now. So kudos to you guys for that. Well, well, 
Put the money where the mouth is. That's right. That's I, right. Conservation you, in action. I'll tell you what I learned. I, I learned I'm going to be careful what I say when I'm walking around in the turkey woods now because you, you never know who's going to be listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, most of the time, most of the time we, uh, you know, we pull out those gobbles with that automated process, but we do a little bit of, you know, verification every now and then. I'll put on one of the recordings and I'll sit here and listen to it in my headphones while I'm having to work in the office just so I can hear the woods when I'm inside. That's so a nice, nice we could pick you up, yeah. but what the, probably the funniest thing that's happened so far with those song meters is uh, I had one of my students come up to me the other day and he asked me, he told me he was hunting a certain WMA that we have him out on. And he was like, Hey, do you have, do you have those <laughs> listening devices out on that WMA? Cause I came across one the other day and I was like, Oh, did you now? And uh, he's like, did you put those in places where, you know, there's a lot of turkeys? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I can neither confirm nor deny that. <laughs> yeah. So you talk about that. A, a few weeks ago, Bronson Strickland was over here and we mm-hmm. went to lunch and he started telling us about this app called Merlin. And we all uh-huh. downloaded it. And you can uh, you, you can you can hit play and it'll record uh, birds in the wild, the sounds, and it'll immediately tell yeah. you what that bird is. It's pretty yeah. amazing. It's incredible. Yeah. So obviously yeah. you're familiar with it then. Yes. Yep. Yeah. There's some other, I think they call them songbird apps, but uh, bird song apps, excuse me. But uh, a lot of the reviews were saying they're not very good yet, but I put it on my phone and it was it was amazing the results I was getting. So let us do this one thing before we let you go, Will. Lanny was hunting this morning and he recorded something and we don't know what in we the world it. it is. It was Can in you a tree. It and you just see it and maybe you'll I'll you know, try. Yeah. I think it was a I think it was a long tail. It sounds cat. like a <laughs> sounds like a dog goose. Okay, so can we all be real quiet yeah, now? We're gonna, play, we're gonna try to play this. I don't know what this is. I was texting <laughs> Mac. He's like, Do you hear anything? I was like, I don't know what this is. That. Does it you do barely it again? hear it? Uh, yeah. you, you might not be able to hear it as good as we can. Sounds like a cross between a crow and a goose. I don't know what it was. <laughs> it's really bizarre. I was thinking maybe a Jake had laryngitis or something. I don't know what it was. Hey Dudley, I know you're real big into plants. So have you? Do you use iNaturalist for any plant ID? Uh, he is our plant I, ID. <laughs> it's all right there, yeah. with Dudley. I, I I use my myself. But he, he, I need to get something like that because, you know, my, my stronghold is trees. And so yeah. I get stumped on a lot of stuff on the ground. These plant yeah, apps have helped him because he doesn't get texts from us all the time. You know, he's like, what is this? What is this? What is this? <laughs> yeah, there's some little, you know, obscure Forbes and stuff that I'll run across every now and then that I'll use it on. And it it, it does a, a fair job of getting me in the ballpark a lot of times. So, Okay. Yeah, Bronson was saying he uses something on Google. A Google uh, image I think Toxie uses, is it called Picture This? I, I think, think so, yeah. Picture yeah. This. Okay. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I probably need to do that. And it's made it so much easier to study. You know, my habitat class I teach, We, we te- I teach a lot. Of, I focus heavily on forbs and grasses because they get a lot of, you know, uh, tree and shrub ID and dendrology, our dendrology course here. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but it's helped those students out so much with studying because in the past, you know, we'd introduce a plant and then they had to go out and find it again. And they weren't really sure because it was only their second time looking for it. But now that they've got these apps, it's turned into a huge study aid for them. Well, if if the technology is there, you know, why not use it? No I, doubt. I question why our kids are still doing math and stuff in school for that reason. They're letting my kids use a calculator doing math. At the same time, <laughs> I'm like, what? Anyway. Anyways. Well, I enjoyed this time with yeah, you guys. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of the ADD going on. <laughs> we, did, we, we did too. Thank you, Will. I didn't mean, and, I didn't uh, mean to sidetrack us. <laughs> no, we are the kings of sidetracking. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah, thanks for what you're doing. Thanks for the studies you're doing. Uh, like Bobby said, this resource is, you know, it's important to everybody uh, in the country uh, um, and not more, um, I wouldn't say it's more important to this than anybody else, but we cherish it more. So. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Enjoyed it, guys. Right, Stay we'll in touch, it. Will. Thanks Thank again. You, Will. All right. All right. Well, that, that was really interesting. No, super yeah. interesting. Super interesting. So, uh, I'm Big gonna, Brother is in the woods. Yeah. Boy, yeah, I he's bet listening there's a lot of people you. have walked up on those things and said, like, what is way. that? <laughs> <laughs> is that a cell phone tower? <laughs> they got me again. They're listening to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dudley, have you got an Ask Dudley question for us? I do. Um, well, let's do that. It's kind of a long question, but. Do you Is have it? it short I've got it in front of me if you don't have it. Yeah, I've got it. Uh, so I have a tree related question. This is from Chris Vogg. V O G T. With a silent T. I, I did not figure out how to pronounce that. Sorry, oh. Chris. All right. Vought. Hmm. I have recently expanded a food plot in the middle of a wooded area. It is located at an intersection of four logging roads. It was an old log deck. There's also a scrape under a dogwood tree at the edge of the food plot that is always used. I've expanded the food plot, and this tree is now in the middle of the food plot, basically like placing a scrape tree in a food plot. All the brush and small trees around it were removed. The tree was damaged five years ago by a tornado when another tree fell on part of it. Since this tree is always being used for a scrape tree, I would like to, dev- to keep it alive if possible. I have some pictures of the damaged tree that would be helpful. Is there anything I can do to save this tree? If not, would you recommend that I plant another tree near it potentially to take its place? And what species do you suggest? Okay, and and, uh, it also says he's in southern Illinois. Um, So good question, Chris. Um, Dogwoods are... I don't want to say picky, but yeah, that's that's probably they right. Are. They're yeah. they're finicky about where they are. They don't seem to like a lot of disturbance around their roots. Um, and I've always told folks that when you you know when you buy a dogwood tree, I'm assuming this is a flowering dogwood. I, I think that's the Illinois State tree. Mm. Maybe I'm wrong. I'll look. Anyway, um, I think that they are. They require a lot of like these fungal and bacterial associations in the soil. Okay, so it's a white oak. I was wrong. <laughs> Maybe it's Missouri or something. Anyway, um, so what I've always told folks when you transplant a dogwood, uh, go find another dogwood that's in the woods and dig up some of the topsoil and organic matter that's underneath that dogwood. And mix it in the soil and on the soil surface when you transplant that new tree to give that life that that the dogwood needs. You know, so a lot of these soils, especially log decks, the organic matter's been pushed away, all that good stuff. So you might could mulch it with some topsoil 
from underneath another dogwood tree that that's happy and in the woods um, mm. to to see if that'll help it. And uh, if it doesn't make it, I probably wouldn't replace it with a dogwood. Uh, replace it with something that's known to have a lot more vigor that can bounce back from being scraped under and rubbed on every year. Um, and maybe something that's got uh, a bit more horizontal branching. I know that, um, you know, deer like that branch that oh, sticks yeah, out at a 90-degree angle. The first thing that comes to mind is black gum. Um, you may even could plant two or three. That way, if they do rub the base, um, they're not able to rub the inside of that clump, and girdle it. so to speak. But something that if it were to get damaged, it's going to sprout back really easily. You know, maybe an elm. Uh, you could do something like a mulberry, so you could get something that makes little fruits and uh, the deer can munch on the leaves and, and scrape around it. Uh, or maybe even another oak, you know, something in the white oak group uh, sounds good to me too. So, hey man, I never heard the get the top soil from one another one is and mix it in. That's a great tip. Yeah, um, I, you you hear about mycorrhiza fungus? Yeah, fungi. Um, I think that word in like Greek or something means fungal root, um, and so they actually help roots absorb moisture and nutrients and you just don't see that in old scalped junk yeah, dirt days. on an old logging deck no doubt about it got to put some life back into the soil so give that a try if it doesn't work plant a mulberry or an elm or something like that thank you mr know-it-all <laughs> Dudley. the fungus is among us yeah, the fungus yeah, is among us what we need so dudley would you say hello to our friends in france for us we uh well i I don't know I how to say, say hello, hello but I was just going to say there's a lot of things that uh, France brings to the table. Yeah. So to bring people that, up to speed, we've suddenly started being on the podcast charts in France. What? Yeah. I, isn't, that, isn't that amazing? They turkey on over there? I don't know. What? what? So what? Uh, <laughs> well, uh, we welcome you guys. I, I wanted you to say hello in French. Well. But, au revoir? Is that? <laughs> I don't know. What, what was it, Mike? We? <laughs> We as hell. Uh, I think yes. it's bonjour. Bonjour. Oh, there we go. There go. There there we go. go. Yeah, you, you're from Mexico. Yeah, so we're closer <laughs> to some bonjour. French people. Yeah. You know, we've got the Acadians down here yeah. uh, that came from France. You got the French uh, Quarter. Yeah, I like I like French oak uh, bourbon or uh, whiskeys and French oak barrels. French fries. Yeah, where did French fries come from? Quick question. I don't know. Belgium. And they're called French. Yeah. Because most of the Belgian people speak French, spoke uh, French. Yeah. So, well, you know, the, the waiter, <laughs> shin gear, that's a French word for oak. Yeah. yeah. Sure I think RSVP is French, if I'm not mistaken. Ooh. What does yeah. that stand for? Uh, Matt, could you fact check me on that? <laughs> I think I'm, I'm 99% sure I'm right that that's a French <laughs> French term. Didn't so. they give us the Statue of Liberty or I something? Mean, I mean, they, they yeah. I can dip my fries in mayo and uh, and thank the French for that. They What? Yeah, that's gross. Well, so <laughs> yeah, this has been a this has been really it's it we're is getting, we're running off here. It is yeah, it mean, is it's French. It, it, it's please reply in it, French. That's right. So there you go. We we, we learn y'all learn we, something. We. So wait, if I, I ask wait. you, what did you learn today? What what did you learn? Uh, 
Olivia, I'm looking you at you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what, did you, what did you learn today? I just Olivia? didn't know much about like all the disease stuff, so I thought that was really cool with like sending in the bone, like the bone marrow and stuff like that. I've never, I, I really don't know much about diseases, so I think that's really cool that they're looking into that stuff. So, do you think any of this that you heard today could be applied to the the quail that you guys? Could yeah, use I think so. Um, actually, the audio recording unit thing that they're doing with the gobbling, uh, a grad student. Um, in my lab, he just graduated, but he put some out at my study site to see if we could also pick up uh, quail calls on those. Because, uh, like he was saying, you know, it takes a lot of manpower to get out there every morning oh, to yeah. record. This is how many gobbles I heard, or whatever. So it'd be so much easier if you could just throw those out and then have like smart technology pick out the calls, and then boom, you've got like a population count. So are the bob white beginning to start whistling? I think slowly. They have elsewhere throughout the state, but they always seem to start a lot later here. Hmm. Um, I've got a grad student um, a little bit farther south at Itchaway, and they're, they're calling like crazy. So, um, Itchaway Plantation. Yes, I think so. And, and that's in Florida? I think it's in, I don't know, it's Georgia. Mm. Maybe Florida, Florida, North Georgia. I mean, uh, like North Florida, South Georgia, somewhere right in there, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah, it's a legendary quail hunting place. Yeah, he's got, I think he has like 100... I think he's up to 100 birds radio collared right now, and so he's tracking them, and um, he's trying to look at uh, how fire affects their movements on the landscape and stuff, so it'll be really interesting to see what he gets from that. But up here, I don't, I haven't heard anything yet, but it should be soon. Anecdotally, I think this time last year, I was hearing some quail whistling in a cutover at, uh, in Sumter County and hearing one over in Lamar County uh, whistling now, because I remember thinking, well, it's turkey season still, too. Didn't we hear some last year turkey hunting? We did. Yeah, we sure yeah, did. Yeah, we sure did. Yeah. They, they, just first thing in the morning, they were just really vibrant. Yeah, on those clear cuts. Yeah. It was interesting when that F5 tornado went through my farm uh, 12 years ago during turkey season. The next year, so this was a mile and a quarter wide of devastation. And I had not seen a covey of quail in probably 20 years out there. Saw two coveys the next year after mm-hmm. that tornado. Need so that just opening. you instantly make good quail habitat and the the quail instantly tried to rebound. Mm. Pretty cool. Well, I hope they do. I, they're such a fun little bird. Love to think about that. I don't, I don't care if I ever hunt another wild covey, but knowing that they're there and hearing them whistle just makes me happy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they, they are. Mac, have you got anything before we get out of cool here? Cool story, bro. If we can right. figure out how to get turkeys and quail to roost in trees, I think we'll be all right. <laughs> no, but seriously, uh, Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa! I what, do have turkeys roost in trees. I mean, uh, lay eggs in the trees, you make nests, nests in yeah. trees. Yeah, yes, but pretty, uh, but on my on a serious note, uh, <laughs> a, get, I have never thought about that, man. But that's. Get a, right. get a wild turkey stamp on mossyoak.com. I mean, they're still for sale. I mean, it's 100% of the the money goes to research. And, I mean, great calls. And, and go yeah, check them out. Yeah, super excited about that. And we're you get something out of it, too. Yeah. I mean, you get, a, you get a cool stamp, a yeah. memorial stamp. Yeah. So, uh, look, if you – you know, we kind of blew by the winner uh, on that uh, gun case. So, if you're the uh, – whoever won – Whispering Pines. Yeah, if you won that, get, just get in touch with us and That's we'll right. get it shipped to you. And I would like to remind everybody that when you're listening to this podcast, Mother's Day is coming up. So, Ooh. don't forget that. Get you some wildflower plugs from Native Nurseries. Yeah, Make your mama happy. Yeah. So uh, – so yeah, Mother's Day. You, know, <laughs> you don't want to forget that. So. Do it. No, yeah. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Is, is anybody have anything else to say, Livia? Well, thank you for being here. Yeah. yeah thank you so, you so much, much for being, being here. here. Yeah. Good. You added a lot. We like you better than David. hundred <laughs> percent. I won't tell him. <laughs> we'll yeah. tell him. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
So anyway, uh, if there's nothing else, uh, why don't you say goodbye, Dudley? Goodbye, Dudley. Get us out of here, Mac Mac. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast. And be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine. And don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland.